And we said every single week that the book of Judges is a series of true stories that are written with the intent of showing God's people God's grace and therefore to call them to faith and obedience. And tonight we're going to look at probably the most famous story in the book of Judges, which is the story of Samson and Delilah. You've heard about this, I'm sure. Maybe if you're anywhere close to a church growing up, you're familiar with this. In fact, um, Regina Spector, as you know, wrote a song about Samson, a biblical character. She made kind of a mythical, apocryphal story about her and this made-up woman, him and this made-up woman, and how he basically ruins her life like he does kind of everything else that he touches, which, great song, listen to it. No other reason I mention that other than to promote Regina Spector here tonight at (laughs) RUF. But what we're going to do is we're going to read this passage, um, mostly from uh, Judges chapter 16, although I've included a little verse in 14. You'll see why here in a little bit. So let me read this, and I'll remind you as we do so, this is God's word for us tonight. Judges chapter 14, verse 4. His, that Samson's, parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Chapter 16. And then she, that's Delilah, said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines. Come back once more, he has told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of his hair and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. And then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he woke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now, the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to celebrate, saying, Our god has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, saying, Our god has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who, has, uh, who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. When they stood him among the pillars, Samson said to the servant who held his hand, Put me where I can feel the pillars that support the temple so that I may lean against them. Now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there. And on the roof were about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, O sovereign Lord, remember me. O God, please strengthen me just once more and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple on the rulers and on all the people in it. And thus he killed many more when he died than while he lived. 
It's God's word. Let me pray for us before we look at it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we would ask in these next few moments that you would be merciful. Uh, we, we know that we have no hope of understanding this apart from your sweet Holy Spirit's help. So would you come and teach us, soften our hearts, open up our eyes, unclog our ears. We really need to, to see uh, the, the goodness and the beauty of the gospel again. So that would be our prayer. We'd ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Jim Carrey movies where he's starring in a dramatic role is The Truman Show. Uh, if, you're, if you've seen this, if you're familiar with it, basically it's a movie that was kind of, that kind of I don't know if it predated, but it, it certainly was about reality TV, where he is uh, a character uh, in this TV world where uh, there's all these hidden cameras, his wife and his neighbors are all actors, and basically his whole neighborhood, his, his whole world is a TV set, and he doesn't know it, and he's been raised being filmed his entire life. And he, you know, as the story develops, he becomes a little bit suspicious of what's going on. And, and if you remember, towards the end of the movie, he finds his way into uh, basically the, the control room where the director is. And you know, there's the, the, you know, this huge um, mixing board with all the different screens, all the different monitors. And he finds out there is much more going on to this story about me than I thought. It's, it's like this curtain gets pulled back on reality. And he, and, he gets, and he gets a vantage point where he gets to see that this story is much more about something else than just me. Now, the reason I bring that up is because in verse 4 of chapter 14, the writer of Judges is doing the same exact thing. He's pulling back this curtain, and he's letting you look, and he's letting you see that, okay, this this is actually a story that's being orchestrated by God himself. The the behind-the-scenes control room vantage point is that God is the one orchestrating this. Even though Samson's terrible, wicked, rebellious, God's still the one in control. The, the, the story behind the story, in other words, is about God. The hero behind the hero is God himself. And so, if we look at the Samson story, we actually get an insight into who God is. And what we find may be counterintuitive. So what I want to do is I want to look at this God that the Samson story is ultimately about, and I want you to see that you, you discover three things. I want to look at these one at a time. Here's the first thing that we learn about the God of the Bible. The first thing is that God ignores the bribe. God ignores the bribe. I'll explain what I mean by that. Well, I didn't include the whole story in your handout, but just to fill you in on some of the details, Samson goes and he meets and he falls in love with this Philistine woman named Delilah. And the rulers of the Philistines go to Delilah and they basically convince her. They say, look, we're going to give you a huge chunk of cash if you can get Samson to tell you the secret of his great strength. We want to know the secret. So they basically blackmail her into getting the information. Now, if you're familiar with any sort of artistic depictions of Samson, he's usually this like jacked up bodybuilder who's basically like the Incredible Hulk with Fabio hair. And the thing that's interesting about that is that that's not really what Samson looked like. Because if Samson was jacked up they wouldn't be looking for the secret to his strength. It'd be very obvious, right? They would know why he's so strong because, you know, homeboy's been hitting the weight room, right? So it's very obvious that that's not what's going on. He's an ordinary dude, just like me. And, um, and, and every now and then, for whatever reason, God empowers him with power and with strength. 
But according to the Philistines, uh, they, they didn't know that. They have the typical pagan, magical outlook on the world. And so they're looking for a charm or an amulet or some sort of magical formula that they think that he has. Now, take a step further into their worldview for just a second. Because they believe that Samson's strength and his power was dependent on external conditions. In other words, he had access to some magical formula, and he followed it precisely, and that's what gave him the strength. That's what gave him the power. This is not too far from Harry Potter. If you think about Harry Potter and the gang, whenever they are coming up with potions, it has to be extremely exact and precise. They have to have all the right ingredients, they have to do all the right thing in order to make the potion work. So, for example, if, if Harry and the gang are making polyjuice potion, what they need for one of their ingredients, and I confirm this on the internet, you know it's true if it's on the internet, they need 16 scruples of fluxweed that were picked at full moon. If they put in 15 scruples of flux weed, the thing would be screwed up and it wouldn't work. Have to have 16 precisely. That's how magic works, and that's how the Philistine worldview worked, is that the gods are manipulatable by having some sort of magical formula and following it precisely. Now, for a lot of us in this room, we are much more like the Philistines than we think. We think that spiritual power is accessed... Through, a, through following the precise steps of a magical formula. And for us, it's not flux weed. But for us, the formula looks something like this. First, you have to be completely surrendered to God. You have to give it all to him. You can't entertain or explore any doubts, any questions. That's not allowed. You have to completely surrender. That's step one. Second step is that you have to be fully emotionally engaged in praise and worship. He has to see that you are really sold out for him. Next step is that you have to be involved in some sort of justice project. God has to see that you really care for people, particularly poor people or victimized people. And then the last step is that you have to incorporate a daily habit of reading the Bible every single morning and journaling and praying and going to church every single week. And if you follow precisely the steps of this magical formula, God will bless you, God will answer your prayers, and God will give you a peace that transcends all understanding. I mean, he, he has to. This is, this, is like, this is a business transaction, we think, where it, it operates just like a vending machine. I put in the right amount of good and right behavior and the precise amount, and out pops blessing and happiness and peace. And actually, this formula, you can look at it in reverse as well. If, if you feel like God's not answering your prayers, if you feel like you don't experience that peace, then you've got to readjust the ingredients. I need more Bible reading in my life. I need less TV in my life. I need to sign up for more service projects, more mission trips. I, I need to play less video games. I've got to adjust the ingredients in order to get what I really want from God, in order for God to bless me. Now, hear me saying this. Please don't hear me say that any of that is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm going on the record. I'm being recorded right now as going on the record as saying, as I, I actually think those are good things and absolutely necessary if you want to live a flourishing, holistic life as a human being. Of course we should be reading our Bible. Of course we should be praying. Of course we should be concerned about justice. Of course we should be excited in worship. All of that is a given. But if you are doing those things in order 
to get God to bless you, in order to, 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 to buy off his favor because of your good works, because of your obedience, because of your good behavior, if you are trying to bribe him, you will be sadly mistaken. God ignores the bribe. He will not be bought with your good behavior, with your... He is not a Philistine God. This this is one of the things that why the God of the Bible is so unique from any other God, from any other worldview, any other religion, is that he does not bless you based on your merit. He is purely a God of grace. And any good thing that we have is a result of purely his unconditional, unmerited love and favor and grace. God ignores the bribe. That's the first thing that we see here. Here's the second thing. The second thing that we discover about God in this story. The first, he ignores the bribe. The second, he abandons the self-sufficient. God abandons the self-sufficient. Okay, back to the story. Samson's crazy in love with Delilah. And he's so obsessed with her, he, he, he just can't live without her. And so as a result, because he's so obsessed, he just lets her walk all over him. And he's so whipped by Delilah that what he does in verse 17, out of fear of losing her, he caves and he tells her his secret. That the strength, that his strength and his power is located in his hair. He thinks that his hair is magical. And if you cut off his hair, he loses all of his strength. He's sadly mistaken. That's not true. He is deluded into thinking that that his hair is magical in some sense. All throughout the story, we see that it's not his hair that gives him strength. It's it's his power is God power. From beginning to end, whenever he gets strength, it's because God's spirit comes upon him and enables him to be powerful. It's not his hair. It's because of God. And in fact, he himself doesn't really even believe that his hair is magical. Because if you look in verse 20... There's at least more going on underneath the surface. So look at it again. Uh, Right before this, Delilah has cut off all of his hair while he's asleep. And he wakes up. And he has to realize that his hair has been cut. I mean, think about it. He has not, homeboy has not had a haircut his entire life. He's got 20 pounds of hair that just got cut off. He wakes up. He's got to know that his hair is cut off. But what does he say? In verse 20, or at least what does he think? He, said, he thinks to himself, I will go out as before and shake myself free. In other words, it does not matter that my hair is gone. I am invincible. I'm unstoppable. Sounds like Kanye here, doesn't he? <laughs> you can't touch me. But what do we learn else in verse 20? The Lord leaves him. The Lord leaves him. God has been so patient with this fool for so long. And now, while Samson thinks he is invincible, God pulls away. In other words, God finally lets Samson have what Samson's wanted all along. Samson, you want independence? You want autonomy? You want freedom from me? You want a life apart from me? Okay. Go for it. God abandons the self-sufficient. He abandons the self-sufficient. Which we have to hit pause here and ask ourselves a really hard question. Are we likewise self-sufficient? Here's how you can know. Here's a couple of ways that you can ask yourself, am I self-sufficient just like Samson? Do I really think I'm put together and unstoppable? Here's a way. Uh, you're self-sufficient if you never tell anyone when you're having, uh, going through a rough time. Not even your closest friends. You do not let them know that you're going through a hard season. 
or you know that you're self-sufficient when uh, you only pray when things are rough. Because on the good days, you sincerely believe that you've got this. You're, you, you're, you're good. Or, you know, if you're ever in a small group or community group, Bible study, anything like that, when it comes time to, you know, kick around prayer requests, the only thing that you pray for are the needs of other people. Can you pray for my grandmother? Can you pray for my friend? Which is fine. But if the extent of you talking about your needs is, can you pray for my chemistry test coming up? Which is important. But if that's the extent of it, nobody sees your needs because you don't, you're either out of touch with them or you don't share them. You're self-sufficient. I'm good and I got this. And the scary reality is that God abandons the self-sufficient. If you've ever been to our house, um, you know that we have an 85-pound dog named Athena. And she is a bull mastiff, and she is fat, and she is lazy, and she is stupid, and she has a drinking problem. If you've been to our house, you know this, that she will drink, she'll go to her water bucket, which is a bucket, it's like a horse pail, and she will drink and drink and drink, and she will not stop herself, and when she either drinks the whole bucket or she kind of gets full, she stops, and then she takes two steps away from the bucket and vomits all over our kitchen floor. It's disgusting. So what we have done for the past two or three years now is we, we cut her off after about three or four seconds of drinking. And it's just so built into the way that we do life. You can be in our kitchen and we'll be having a conversation. You're sharing something with us and we're hearing Thena in the background drinking and you're talking all of a sudden. We say, Thena, stop. We're ta- okay, go on. And then the person, if the student is not aware of what her drinking issues are, will be like, do you not want her to drink water? Like, I don't understand. Why are you anti-water? You know, feeding your dog. And so we explain, no, no, no. We, we have to restrain her. We have to stop her. Because if we don't, if she gets what she wants, uh, she's going to get sick and there's going to be a huge mess. God is merciful to restrain us. And the worst thing that we can do for our dog is to give her what she wants. And the worst thing that God can do for us is to give us what our idolatrous hearts want. The worst thing that God can do for you is to give you what your idolatrous heart wants. That's the worst thing that he can do. And so just look at, look at how the Samson story ends. Look at what happens. Samson finally has what he wants. And what happens? Verse 21. The Philistines capture him because he doesn't have any power now. They carve his eyeballs out of his face. They, they chain him up like an animal and they force him into manual labor. He who is at the height of his game is now brought painfully low. He, he who lived by sight is now blinded. And it actually gets worse because if you look in verse 23, you have this, this end scene which is in the Philistines' pagan temple. And it's kind of like a coliseum where there's this huge arena, thousands of people all around. And look at what they say in verse 25. Uh, while they were in high spirits, which means while they were drunk, they shouted, bring out Samson to entertain us. And they call Samson out of prison and he performs for them. Now, we don't know what that means. But it had to have been terrible and degrading and humiliating. I mean, here is Samson who is blinded, mutilated, tortured, a slave, a prisoner, brought out, and they're mocking him, they're toying him, they're laughing at him. 
God abandons the self-sufficient. Now, maybe one of the reasons why you find yourself in a spiritual funk, why you find yourself disconnected from God, is that you have not resisted your idols. But you have given into them time and time and time again. And as a result, God has just slowly let you have what you want. You want a life apart from me? You want to worship this? Okay. And he slowly lets you have what you want. And now, because you have what you want, you find yourself disconnected from God, cold towards him, apathetic, bored, he doesn't energize you. And you're on a trajectory further and further away from him. I really think this is probably one of the scariest realities about the God of the Bible, is that he lets you have what your sinful heart wants. And I think that that should radically change how we pray and what we pray for. Not just pray for things, but to pray for our actual wanter, that the wanter in us is messed up. God ignores the bribe. He abandons the self-sufficient. But this raises a major problem in this story. Because Samson is the chosen deliverer. Everybody's hopes and dreams were on Samson delivering his people. And where do we find him? God's abandoned him. He, he's chained. He's, he's a prisoner. He's humiliated. He, he's in, he has no power. He's in no position to save anyone. He is rendered completely helpless, completely worthless. And that's exactly where God wants him. Here's the last thing, the third and the last thing that we see and that we learn about God is that he responds to the needy. He responds to the needy. If you look at verse 28, for the second time in his life that we know of, Samson prays. And in verse 28, he addresses God by his personal covenantal name, Yahweh. This is why in your translation, Lord is in all caps. Anytime you see the word Lord in all capitals, that's the translation of God's personal, most intimate covenantal name, Yahweh, which you may have heard before. And what does Samson ask for? The first thing he asks for is he asks for God to remember him. To remember him. Which means he's he's acknowledging, I'm forgettable. And God, I'm begging for mercy for you to even acknowledge me. You have no right to pay attention to me right now, but I'm begging for mercy. And the second thing that he prays for is strength. For the first time in his life ever, he acknowledges that he is dependent on God. He admits, I am weak, I am desperate, I am am needy. And now that he is weak, now that he is blind, he can finally see. This is is Samson actually exercising and demonstrating faith for the first time. Now, if I were God, and here's Samson doing this to me, here's something I would have said. Oh, now you want to pray to me. This is very convenient. When when everything else gets destroyed in your life, you have nothing else left to turn to, now you turn to me. Oh, your whole life you have squandered my goodness. You've been a, a spoiled, entitled brat your entire life. And okay, No, no. You got yourself into this, you can get yourself out. Thankfully, I'm not God. Because God promises to always respond, always respond to those who honestly, faithfully cry out to him. 
he always promises to respond to those who cry out to him in faith. And by that word faith, which I know is a churchy word, all I mean by that is, is a coming to God with empty hands, desperately grabbing onto him because you have nothing else to grab onto. That's what faith means. And that's what Samson is doing. In Psalm 9, verse 10, it says this, God never forsakes those who seek him. He never forsakes those who seek him. And so here Samson is, broken, humbled, needy, seeking God, and God responds and gives him one last burst of strength and power. And because Samson's blind, he has his two hands against the supporting pillars to this pagan temple. And he pushes with all of his might, the supporting tower pillar things fall down. And the temple crashes in on itself, collapses, and kills everyone there, including him. And Israel is delivered from the Philistines through the death of a deliverer. God responds to the needy. So, you take these three things and you put them together. God abandons, or God ignores the bribe, which means he's not bought off by your good behavior because, frankly, your good behavior is not good enough. He um, abandons the self-sufficient, which means God will have nothing to do with you if you think that you are good and strong and put together. And in fact, if you think that you're good and strong and put together, you won't want anything to do with God in the first place. And lastly, God, God responds to the needy. He draws close to those who admit, I, I am broken and ugly and weak and desperate. If, you con- if you're connecting the dots here, here's what this means. God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you are. God's acceptance of you has nothing to do with how good you are or how bad you are. It has everything to do with your willingness to ask for mercy. It has everything to do with your willingness to ask for mercy. Now, what I just said makes absolutely no sense unless you see that the story about Samson is ultimately the story about Jesus. The story of Samson is ultimately pointing to the story of Jesus. I mean, do you think all the connections, all the parallels are coincidental? I mean, just think about it for a second. Just like Samson, Jesus was set apart to deliver his people. Just like Samson, Jesus is empowered with the Holy Spirit. Just like Samson, Jesus is rejected by those that are closest to him and betrayed by those that are closest to him and handed over to Gentile oppressors. Just like Samson, Jesus is mocked. I mean, do you remember that scene in the Gospels where the Roman soldiers drape that, that purple robe over him and they put that crown of thorns on his head and they kneel before him and they say, Oh, hail, King of the Jews. All they're doing is just throwing back in his face how ridiculous that they think he is. It's a joke. They're mocking him, laughing at him. Just like Samson, Jesus was chained up and tortured. Samson was blinded. Jesus was blindfolded. And just like Samson, Jesus is crushed under an enormous weight. And both of them save their people through their death. Here's why this changes everything. Because Jesus was abandoned by God at the cross, this means God will never abandon those that are his. Because Jesus was forsaken and cast out and crushed at the cross, this means God will never abandon or forsake those that are his. Jesus buys it. He buys your deliverance for you. He buys it. Look, 
If you've been with us the past few weeks, you will know that Samson has been a train wreck. He is a sex addict and an alcoholic. He is in, he's a murderer. He's impulsive. He is cocky. He's violent. He betrays God. He wants nothing to do with God. And yet, what do we see in the story? God returns to him. God does not ultimately abandon him. God draws close to him. And if, so, if God will not write off someone like him, there is nothing that you could do. There's nothing that I could do that can make God want to write you off. In other words, you are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of his grace. You are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of his grace. So what do you do? How do you hook into his grace? How do you hook into his mercy? You ask for it. That's it. You know, it, I can't go too long without quoting one of my favorite hymns, which is what we're, what we're about to sing. Come ye sinners. And it has a line in it that really has revolutionized my life. It says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. In other words, the only thing that you need is to admit your need. That's it. To admit your need and to ask for mercy and the glory of the gospel is that God will give it. He will give it. But here's what this means. If you want to hook into his grace, if you want to hook into his mercy, then this means that you have to admit you're needy. This means that you have to admit that you're a charity case. That you are spiritually bankrupt and you have to go on welfare. And the glory of the gospel is that he responds. But the question is, are you willing to ask for that? Are you willing to ask for mercy? Are, we, are you willing to say, God, before you, I'm a charity case. Or is your pride and your self-sufficiency blocking you from doing that? I'll wrap up with this. With this. this is a story I just heard recently about a man uh, named Paul Koistra, who used to be the um, president of my denomination seminary. And in, my, in Presbyterian circles, Paul Koistra is kind of known as being a, a famous fundraiser. And he tells the story of one time when he was the president of Covenant Seminary. He was, he was um, trying to raise money because the seminary was $10,000 in deficit. And he happened to have been staying at this wealthy, generous man's home one night. And they were together, spent the night together and hung out and, and uh, they were getting ready to pray before they went to bed. And uh, Paul asks this wealthy, generous man, look, I, I really need you to pray for us because you know, we're $10,000 down and we really need the Lord to provide $10,000 know, to bring us up to speed. So the guy says, yeah, I'd be happy to pray for that. They pray, go to bed, and that's all Paul hears from him. A few weeks later, uh, a missionary from France is in town and happens to stay at that same wealthy, generous man's home. And this man donates $20,000 to this French missionary. And when Paul hears about it, he's angry. And he goes back to that man, to that wealthy, generous man, and says, look, look, I, I love you. I love that missionary. I'm so glad that you're supporting him. I, I really am. I'm thankful that you're on board with him. I just got to know, why did you give him $20,000? You didn't give me anything. And the guy looks at Paul and says, you didn't ask. You asked me to pray for you, and I prayed for you. If you need money, you need to ask. If you need mercy, you need to ask. The beauty and the glory of the gospel is that because of the person and work of Jesus... God will give it. 
But you have to ask. And that's your invitation for tonight. Let me pray. Father, we admit, I admit, that I am self-sufficient. I am often faithless. I regularly uh, try to bribe you into blessing me because of my good behavior, because of my preaching, because of my position. Father, I am a mess just like Samson. And if my friends here tonight are anything like me, they are as well. And so we need your mercy. Would you be merciful to someone like me? Would you be merciful to people like us? Father, thank you that because of Jesus, you are. Father, thank you that because of the cross, you have, you have made a down payment and a public declaration of your commitment to granting and giving mercy and grace. And so, Father, I pray for my heart and for the hearts of these folks tonight. Would we be stunned by your love and by your grace and your mercy that you would extend such a hand to people as, as broken, as selfish, as self-sufficient as we are. Melt us again by the glory of the gospel, we would ask. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.